How about we just do seeking a friend for Mike and James? That's not that's that's not offensive. Actually, I like that because it, it's like uh, we don't have friends. Yeah. It, well, it's like it's like Eliza's you the know. only loser you could get. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Talking During the Movie, seeing a friend from Mike and James, and this time we actually have a friend. Hi. <laughs> so I'm James and Mike is sick so he's not going to talk this entire episode, and we have a friend who is named Eliza and she is the woman we brought on so we can say later that we're not sexist. And she also does not want to talk the entire episode, so this is pretty much just going to be James uh, jerking himself off for an hour. Can we not talk about my jerking off on an episode where we're going to discuss feminist themes of Mad Max? That's what we're going to. That's what we're going to do. Uh, but first, this is our. We have to start our general girl power episode, and all our new segments are about prominent women in film doing things or not doing things. And this actually happened quite organically. It just, it, I mean, okay. We cherry picked a bit, but there were a lot, there, there was a lot of female centric news and movies this week, which is actually pretty, uh, uh, wonderful and timely to this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, I actually, this sort of got, got, came about because we couldn't find a movie to review. And I happened to be texting Eliza about, uh, Mad Max and uh, its feminist implications, and then I was like, shit, we should just podcast about this, and then I was like, hmm, a podcast of two straight white men talking about feminism. Not the best formula, but it is, honestly, I, I'm so much happy, I, I'm happy that we're doing this episode as opposed to, I mean, the alternative was talking about San Andreas, is that, no, instead we're tackling institutional uh, sexism in Hollywood, so I, you know, I think that's a, a much more fruitful topic with a lot more uh, potential for positive results. And before I go into my ham-handed segment, I am going to let Eliza sort of introduce herself if she wants. <laughs> oh, oh, hi, I'm Eliza. I do theater, so I am coming at this from. A perspective of someone involved in the theater industry, which has similarities in terms of sexism and misogyny, but also differences. So it's a different perspective. Yeah, and she and I had a, a feisty conversation about the about Mad Max. It was lengthy and fun. And I was like, she's going to be great for this. So uh, she thinks I'm I'm hyping her up too much, but yep. Now so. you get to find out how wrong you were. <laughs> Men are always wrong. That's the moral of this episode. Nice. Bring uh, back. Pick it up, James. You are in a nosedive, my friend. <laughs> you can't say I'm in a nosedive. It's the start of every intro that you make me do. I'm sick. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're in a nosedive. Ah, uh, wow. <laughs> that hit home. All right, the first one I'm going to talk about, I'm just going to take this one away because, well, everyone can talk about it. But uh, Sofia Coppola, the director and writer of Lost in Translation, and among many other things, um, is pulled pulled out of the directing the live action Little Mermaid that's supposed to come up due to creative differences, which is normally a term that means like someone was doing cocaine somewhere. But this is actually like legit in that it's arguing over who was going to be casted as the Little Mermaid as Ariel. Um, 
And that is fucking bullshit. I, I can't think of any producer who, who would tell a director like like Martin Scorsese, oh, you can't cast who you want as the, the lead role. Like, where the fuck do they get off telling, telling so, Sofia Coppola, who is often among top five in female directors, like, you can't cast who you want. Living, at least. I mean, there were... Like, okay, like, her father uh, notoriously had uh, similar problems with studios regarding movies that he was making, but these were generally when uh, it was a matter of budget and or he was, like, a new up-and-coming filmmaker, but uh, Sofia Coppola has uh, been nominated at the Academy Awards, and she has a a pretty illustrious career at this point, uh, very well-respected. Yeah, I agree with you. And this is, like, this story is a little bit too... Like, like, this is the second major female director who's been booted off a project. Like, a, a, a really, like, the, like high notoriety project, too. Like, Michelle McLaren. Oh, and Wonder Woman, right? Earlier this year, yeah, was was kicked off a of Wonder Woman. And I'm really, like, I, I, I love her. She's primarily a TV director. But, like, she would have done some really cool things. And the studio, that was also for create, creative differences. Uh, and I believe the studio, it, it was... Uh, the studio had uh, uh, an idea of how to depict Wonder Woman that was more like, uh, you know, intimate and character driven, and she wanted to make the film sort of more grandiose and more epic, and uh, they uh, apparently didn't see eye to eye on it, and that was that was grounds for her to leave the project. Um, which this makes me really sad. If the idea of a female director, I, I can't speak to this as being a trend, but I, I really hope that. It, the notion of a female director fighting for her artistic vision, like male directors have done for decades, um, quite famously, if that results in them continuously getting booted off of projects, that's a pretty sad, uh, it's a pretty sad trend. Yeah, no, she wanted to cast uh, Ethan Hawke's daughter, who I think is a newcomer, so sure, but Ethan Hawke is a great actor, so I feel like it's it was sort of an out there pick, but not not something. It's something that I would trust a director to do, especially one with the chops like Sofia Coppola. This isn't some, you know, someone off the streets who you picked, who like Marvel picked up or something. You know, <laughs> it's like do what we want you to do. You know, this is someone who should have her own vision. Do you know what? Do you know what her father did uh, when he was casting The Godfather, and he told the the studio heads that, that he wanted Marlon Brando to play. Vino Corleone, which of course he famously did and won an Oscar for. Yeah. Um, the, the studio had said no flat out, and uh, the story has different variations. But uh, the the known fact is that Francis Ford Coppola got down on the ground and either faked a seizure or some sort of medical ailment, and started essentially throwing a tantrum that that he needed Marlon Brando in this film, and uh, that eventually got like like I mean he had to resort to ridiculous things, but they, they eventually folded and, and conceded to him. Uh, I mean, fighting for artistic vision against studio odds is, is what like uh, so much of classic cinema is about. But if that if if the studio just does not if it just boots any opposition from VL directors off of a project, there's really no hope of of even getting those visions on screen and and financed by big by big studios. Like there's no way to there's no way to advance it if they're just gonna def- default to finding a different director. Yeah, man, this may this may be a better transition to go into uh, go right into Reese Witherspoon at the Producers Guild. Does that does that sound? Yeah, yeah, sure, natural? that's fine. Unless anyone else has anything to say about uh, about Little Mermaid. 
Nope. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, it just it seems like it's so often that women are sort of given women directors are given this a very short leash, whereas male directors are given you know basically the keys to the car. They can do whatever they want. You know, uh, and. That's the sort of thing that Reese Witherspoon talked about at the Producers Guild of Producers Guild of America. What was it? There, it was a big conference. I don't know the specifics, so I'm sorry. Um, but Reese Witherspoon has been so active recently in making sure that that movies with either female writers, female, you know, good female roles are being produced. You know, she's funneling a lot of her own money into this kind of thing. She produced Gone Girl. Uh, written by, you know, written by Gillian Flynn. And, you know, I think she was might have been a producer for for Wild, the movie she started, but that was still uh, a noble project. And she's kind of like the only one doing this, and she talks about how important it is. And it is important. It is important, and it makes me sad that she was uh, such a consistent uh, presence behind so many of the female nominees for Best Actress last year. And, like, if, if she's really the main one spearheading, I'm just wondering why aren't more people joining her? And I guess I, I spoke with Eliza a little bit about this in the pre-show, and this is not film-specific at all? Yeah, it's it's definitely not only in film that there's an issue of women being in power positions or pushing for women. And what it comes down to is that we really can't have only women trying to make it happen because if that were all it needed, it would have happened already. We need male support, and that's what really needs to happen now. I think of how many you know filthy rich people there are in Hollywood who could easily be doing the thing, things that Reese Witherspoon are, and probably to a greater extent because, frankly, they have more money, um, <laughs> and they aren't. Um, no, I mean, I think, I mean, looking at some of the, the highest, you know, the, the highest grossing filmmakers, like, I, I feel like Joss Whedon's the only one I could single out as someone who's been pretty uh, avid uh, voice for feminism. And even then, uh, recently, he just got flack for uh, his portrayal of uh, women, particularly Black Widow and uh, the new Avengers film. Um which has caused some to speculate that he deleted his Twitter, although he denies that's the reason, and I believe him. I I probably shouldn't have even, you know, referenced that now. But, I mean, he was getting some flack on on Twitter for Avengers as well. He was, and I think that that's valid to some extent. But also, um, I mean, some of some of the problems people were having with the Avengers is that they took a strong female lead and gave her a relationship, which is, in my opinion, sort of a bullshit critique because even yeah. strong females in real life do have relationships. Right. That a relationship does not make a woman less strong or less of an individual just because she has a partner by her side. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, though, I think an argument could be made that in Avengers he reduced a character to a relationship. Like, he made that relationship so much a part of that character in that movie and gave her so few defining characteristics outside of it in that film. Um, with character development being really kind of just hinted at in, in her visions, which which aren't very 
concrete. So, I mean, I get the, I get the, uh, I get the flack. Definitely. I, I, I actually agree with it it's, to some point, but I also agree with you. That's not, uh, I feel like it's a common misconception that depicting a female character in a relationship with a male character is somehow belittling or anti-feminist, which I feel like only is actually kind of not a, a bad image to have of feminism. Oh yeah, one of one of Eliza's and I, Eliza, Eliza's and my favorite shows is Shameless. I hope it's one of your favorites. It's mine, <laughs> one of mine. Yeah. And uh, it uh, yeah, with Fiona Gallagher, she has lots of relationships in that uh, show, and it doesn't neither want to make her any any a weaker character. In fact, they they drive her character, and you know she learns so much through them, and you gr- sort of grow with her. So I really I like the idea that Eliza represented that you know. It, just being in a relationship isn't enough to criticize. Yeah. That, you know, a lot of these problems we've been talking about are still still around, obviously, because they're still in stories. Um, well, and but, the fact that we have to make an episode about, about how we think a film got it right <laughs> is also kind of indicative of the fact that it's still such a widespread problem. Right, women being plot devices, yeah, rather or, than people. Yeah, motivations for male characters, or just Rachel Dawes. Rachel Dawes. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> James, stop spoiling my list of the top five greatest female uh, <laughs> figures in film. Um, yeah, yeah. I this is as good a good a transition as I I could ever force. So, oh, man. Uh, okay, yeah, our. Our main segment, instead of reviewing a movie, is to sort of continue and expand upon the brief text conversation I had with Eliza about how Mad Max is feminist. Don't don't land on Mad Max is a feminist movie and then move on with your life. Let's unpack that. Let's talk about exactly what makes it a feminist movie. And also and the to, problems. Yeah. And to what sure. it, yeah, exactly. To what extent it is a feminist movie. Right. Um, and for anyone who's like, oh, no. They're they're lingering on a movie too long. A, our alternative was San Andreas, and B, uh, Reddit is not over this movie yet. So why should we be? That's true. We, or hell, we the should... internet isn't over this movie yet. So. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I don't know that we should frame our podcast around what Reddit's talking about. But well, the internet, the internet, internet as a whole has not has not gotten over this movie yet. And we're part of the internet now. We have uh, I th- our, since our last episode, seventeen viewers. It's really that? it's really going to our heads. Yeah, this power. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Mad Max, often, Mad Max Fury Road, directed by George Miller, often seen as a feminist movie. So much so, well, part of, one of the reasons is because, I can't remember her name, you do, Eve Eliza. Eve Ensler. Yes, brought on Eva Ensler. Eve Ensler. Eve Ensler, damn it, see, I, I, I'm a know-nothing. But a, a feminist consultant, basically, and I thought that was admirable because George Miller, as an old white guy doesn't have the life experience to, uh, or from a, a perspective of a woman to create those characters organically. So he sought outside help much like Mike and I are doing right now. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, it actually reminds me of, um, these about what, uh, Juno Diaz said, uh, you know, the author about men who write about women. And he basically said that for, uh, to get, because that, men just do not have that perspective they need to like essentially seek out help they need to 
get that different ex- perspective by by like talking to women and actually working with women and and like you know glean that perspective from them they can't do it from anything that they've you know that they've subjectively experienced in their own lives it, it reminds me of that because george miller had the humility to go to someone else and say hey i i don't understand i want to i want to get this right i want to portray these as real people i don't want to i don't want to be unfair to anyone so you know help me you know help me get it right help me understand help me convey this perspective in my movie i think that's actually really great uh yeah it sheds a really great light on him that he is willing to to say i would like help please yeah yeah and i'm not really familiar with uh the persons whose names I just forgot. So what does she do, Eliza? Um, she is best known for a play called The Vagina Monologues. Oh, uh, I've um, heard of that, yes. Yes, a lot of people have heard of it. Um, it's it's a number of monologues by just various women all speaking about their life experience as, as females, um, talking about rape, talking about birth, just various experiences of being women. Okay, yeah, that's a, a very good voice to have, and I sort of see where that expertise would shine through in in uh, making Mad Max Fury Road and all the characters he had. So, um, what I want to what I want to get on the way, and what I was sort of quabbling, uh, well, I thought I was quabbling with Eliza about. It. it turned out we were in much more agreement than we thought while texting. Um, I wanted to get over the notion that. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road is a feminist movie because it has a strong female character in Charlie's Throne as uh, Imperator Furiosa. Because that is so weak. So many movies have good female characters but are not necessarily or even not at all feminist. So I like the idea of going into a further analysis of it because it's not enough to have a strong female character. You know, I, I use Avengers as an example. Scarlet Witch in the Avengers Age, Age of Ultron very strong female character. The only man she talks about really is her brother, which is, that's a great relationship that's not often explored from women. Not, not a feminist movie, especially when you consider the counterpoint in that movie that everyone argues against of Black Widow. So, but, but, Fury Road does go beyond that, goes far beyond that. Although, I mean, honestly, my first thought walking out of the movie, and I saw it because I heard that it was very feminist, because I heard about MRAs complaining about it and trying to boycott it. I was like, that's something I want to give my money to. We don't, we don't have to give those guys a voice, but yeah. I walked out of that theater with my, my first thought being, I don't understand how this is such a feminist masterpiece. It seems like common sense that women shouldn't yeah. be possessions. That was my first thought. Oh, but, yeah. And that's really the only polemic that the movie asserts, which it's kind of sad that there's any objection to that at all. But there is. There's <sighs> so, so much objection. It's so fucking sad. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree that all the, like, I saw it as from a film lover's perspective that, of course, all these characters should be given equal weight, you know, where, where necessary. And really, we talked about in our review of it, every character from... The individual, you know, wives to the the many mothers, they were so interesting by themselves, and even and the male characters too were were great, you know, from uh, Hectus Erectus to Nux, you know, to, uh, and of course Mad Max, 
Um, and that was just like, yeah, exactly. Of course they should have. But I think there are a lot of feminist themes that I really overlooked when thinking back on whether or not it's a feminist movie. Um, just off that, my own initial shallow analysis that, yeah, of course all characters should be equal. How is it? I mean, that wasn't, it didn't seem inherently feminist to me. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, George Miller, I'm going to use the word respect a lot in this episode because it's just so fitting. Yeah. He, George Miller respects the, yeah, you better be. George Miller respects the crap out of just about every single one of his characters, uh, male or female in this movie. Um, I empathized with pretty much every single person. I empathized with uh, the. I, I empathized with Furiosa. I empathized with um, of uh, Imperator Joe's wives. I empathized with Hectus Erectus. Even I, I empathized with the War Boys, um, and the only people who don't really see, who really are cartoon like the, cartoonish in that they don't have any character. They don't have much complexity to their character in this film are the people in power. So pretty much a Morton Joe, uh, the bullet farmer and, uh, and the guy from the oil people town, leader. the people leader. Thank you. Mm. Um, yeah, I, it, those are really the only people George Miller doesn't take any time to humanize really, um, to, I think a, a pretty, a, a pretty good effect. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I think that's maybe why it doesn't come off as a, feminist film the first time you see it it comes off as more common sense because there's never a point where george miller is going out of his way to make a point that women that that these women characters should be empathized with the only people like it comes in lines that you know we you know we you can't own us i think i'm getting the quote completely wrong actually um the they write it on we the are walls not of, things we are not things thank you so much um mm-hmm. yeah we are not things um and that's i mean that's the only point and they're making it do uh uh immortan joe and that's not really anything the movie feels it needs to take the time to convince you of which i would really think it wouldn't need to um and honestly the most of the other uh uh points i've heard made about this film in reference to how it is a feminist film are made through subtleties and through way ways it treats characters rather than through any points it asserts with an active voice it like just the fact that like this mutual respect that uh, that Mad Max and Furiosa kind of treat each other with later in the film. There's never any rivalry because she's a girl and he doesn't have any pride because you know he that you know she can shoot uh, better than he can. Um, th- there's never those beats where uh, that, that a lesser film would take advantage of so readily. And I think oh, you shoot pretty good for a girl. Yeah. I yeah. think it's really important that that Furiosa was portrayed as being on equal footing with Max rather than being above him even, because when it comes down to it, feminism by definition is equality. It is not women better than men, men better than women. It is, it is striving to reach a point where everyone can be and is treated equally. Yeah. And the fact that they were put on equal footing, that they had equal say, I think was really important. Yeah, I, I agree. But I also think that's maybe why, like, for you, James, it didn't come off as a feminist film um, the, when you first saw it. Or you didn't, I at least didn't consider it in feminist terms or with feminist themes. Yeah, I mean, well, the more I thought about it, honestly, when I was when I was texting Eliza, you're bringing up the uh, the themes that they touched on a lot, you know, taking back your body, that kind of thing, when they're just the very fact that they're running away from this sexual enslavement 
that's clearly I can't argue at all that that's not a feminist theme that is carried throughout the film. And the idea of sexual enslavement, this is something that was really powerful to me and to a lot of people, is that there is so much, when when rape or, or sexual abuse is in a film, it is in a film, it is in your face, and that becomes almost a fetishization of a woman's body and of that use of it. Mm-hmm. And this movie didn't feel the necessity to portray it on screen. You knew it happened. It was obvious. They didn't need to say it. They didn't need to shove it in your face by physically showing it to you, which is really repulsive to a lot of people. Yeah, it, it, it's true. They did um, They did kind of hint at Joe's commoditization of people and speci- people in general and women in particular with uh, he has another batch of essentially female slaves who he uses uh, to produce mother's milk, uh, which I think the film implies like that's a commodity that he uses to trade with bullet, the, the bullet town and, uh, and, uh, or the bullet farm and oil town. Um, and it just kind of, yeah, it just kind of gives the impression of how Joe kind of views uh, these people as just things and means to profit. I, well, I think it's a misreading of a Morton Joe's character to say that, say that he simply hates women. Right. I, I, I will say he has no regard for women other than what they can do for him. You know, that's why he has the, the people giving him breast milk. That's why he has the women who can, the, he, you know, covets the most beautiful women so he can create the perfect children with them. Like, I, I didn't see hatred there. You know, it, it was almost a sick form of caring about them, like a twisted form of caring about them. You know, uh, Furiosa makes reference to it. You know, you shot his favorite, she says to Mad Max after, you know, when he shoots uh, the pregnant one in the leg. It feels like kind of, uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I was kind of getting at that, mainly because um, also Furiosa is kind of established as being a a main player in a Morton Joe's, in the Citadel, essentially. She's the one who he trusts to drive the war rig to Oil Town, to the Bullet Farm, to get resources and to trade. Um, So, it's not as though, uh, while his his ownership of women and female bodies is most certainly sexist, it's not as though he's averse to putting a woman in this position of uh, of significance. Which Peter Furious James brought up a good point about that. In that he doesn't. I I don't think that he necessarily respects her. I think. What James said is that he uses everyone for what their skill is. He doesn't respect or care for the war boys any more than he does the women. That's and true. Furiosa is obviously not going to be his prized beauty. She is good at, I think James said it as uh, <laughs> driving and kicking ass. And so that's what he uses her for. That's She's true. a commodity. Yeah, I... And I don't mean I don't mean to say that she is nothing more than driving and kicking ass. She is clearly that's a lot all more she motivation. is to Joe, though. That's all she exactly. Is to Joe. Yeah, um, but I, I guess the the fact that Furiosa was the only one you said kind of took you out of it, Eliza. That did bother me that you don't see any other women that have worked their way up at all. There, there's the war boys. They're all men. You don't see any other women driving anything. So I guess for me that was just a struggle to, that sort of pulled me out of the universe is that there is one powerful female. 
yeah. That yeah, seems like someone who's hungry to use people for whatever they can offer probably would have found at least one more woman woman to do so. I could I could see that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it, it did seem odd that Furiosa was the sole uh, sole woman who had any position <laughs> near as as influential as as she had. Um, did it? Do you guys think that the film kind of gave any implications of what? like basically how she worked her way up or what I kind of got the impression that maybe she had been a breeder or if not a breeder, maybe someone who Joe did use more uh, with less regard for their person and and somehow managed to work her way into his good graces. I I don't know. It's all kind of speculation because the film is so light on exposition. I saw this movie with my mom and her opinion on it was, and this was just her kind of spitballing off of me. um, But that maybe because Furiosa is not affected by the nuclear fallout the way that the war boys and the people in the town are, that her only quote-unquote deformity is the fact that she's missing an arm. My mom thought that maybe Joe idolizes this perfect female form, that Furiosa went against him. He tried to get her for a breeder, and she cut her own arm off as a way of telling Joe she wouldn't be his and he gained respect for her through that oh, i could just, easily see that yeah. i actually could too <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's making a lot theory. of sense <laughs> that's a great theory and then i also i mean they never explain in the film why her arm is cut off right that's no they don't they no never explanation. Do. yeah all right i completely i'm i'm kind of on board with that theory actually <laughs> Yeah, she had explained that she was, you know, it's a very subtle line where she says, well, now I got a, now I'm driving a war rig, you know, so it implies that she wasn't always, you know, in that position of power, that she was sort of working her way up. Um, But, you know, how did she get there? And I think that's as good of an explanation as any. Yeah. Um, I also want to draw, and this is one thing that bugs me about quote unquote strong portrayals of female characters um, that Mad Max is very good at avoiding is basically being content with the stoic badass woman with a gun as a sur- like as an excuse for a strong female character because she has physical power or physical like ways to to beat or kill other people that she is immediately a strong female character and no no uh no no regard to what her actual character is or her motivations or or her personality or anything like that i think that's uh, a misinterpretation of of strong almost as being physically strong rather than strong meaning multifaceted yeah, well developed, you know. Yeah, I wanted to follow up with that by asking you guys what you thought. Uh, we've talked about Furiosa. Uh, there are obviously so many other female characters in this in this uh, movie, the many mothers and the other and uh, Morton Joe's wives. What do you guys think define them as? If if in fact you think they were, which it sounds like you both do, as strong female characters, what kind of characteristics do you think really? Uh, really made them become more than just badasses with guns. Um, I think with with the the many mothers and with the wives, there was an element that was really important of really controlling their own lives. Max, I, I saw a critique of it saying that in the end they all just kind of went along with the man, but I don't feel like that's what happened when Max chased them down and gave them that option. That was them 
even if it even if it did come down to all of them dying, it was them choosing how they would die, and they were allowed to have that choice. They were allowed to fight in order to control their own destiny. Oh, what I saw was sort of I like that they gave these. I like that they gave a lot of the women what you could call, and and you might be wrong in doing so, but what you could call innately female characteristics, such as an emphasis on like caregiving sometimes, like you know, and when you know the wives are. A lot of them, especially the pregnant one, matronly. The uh, one of the many mothers who carries around seeds is she's trying to caretake the 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 world, you know, as it once it decides to, you know, fix itself. Um, I thought that was nice because it also wasn't it, it it was definitely treated everyone equally, but it wasn't afraid to say that well, women are also different. But they weren't untouchable. They weren't. Uh you know, they could die. They could get hit with these cars. They could be putting themselves at risk. And I know we, we mentioned this in our first review, but I, I still love the fact that um, most of the many mothers did uh, their own stunts, um, uh, particularly the elderly woman, uh, because they didn't want it to come off as something un unrealistic and uh, end up be being a joke like an old woman with a gun killing people that, that no one would believe it, it. They wanted it to be something that was true and something that kind of came from a, a character who spent most of her life fighting. Like, they, like these people all have such storied pasts that we, that aren't explained, but you can just see it on their faces and the way that they act and, and interact with each other. Um, I also love that the film stops to take beats for humor. Like one of my favorite lines of the movie, actually, that doesn't really, it's not one, like one that's quoted a lot, but um toward the end uh when when they're kind of ruminating with the they they meet up with the um uh at the what, what's supposed to be the green place and uh realize there's nothing there and it's nighttime and uh one of martin joe's wives is just like stroking her belly because she knows she's pregnant and she just says god he's gonna be so ugly <laughs> and I, I don't know i i love that i, I don't know that, that there's that hint of like you know, joking even about like, uh, you know, something like a pregnancy, which is kind of, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like like that finding humor in that place seemed like kind of an unorthodox uh, move for me that, that was really rewarding and refreshing. I'm not sure if that's really coming off for everyone else, but the, I appreciate that. And I, I don't know. There's just little moments like that that make up uh, their characters for me more than the, and like a, an actual uh, expository history for every single character well what i what i liked about that particular joke is that you know no one else made a joke about her pregnancy right she did <laughs> right it, the, and the it's film didn't make a joke of her pregnancy you no. know we didn't it, just like we didn't have the badass old ladies we didn't have a badass pregnant girl going around <laughs> yeah exactly you know, in fact the one pregnant like the one girl who's quite who's visibly very pregnant dies uh horribly yeah, by horribly the way. there was and there were even just uh, after a kind of a fake out where she's like, oh, she's OK. Like she's she, you know, didn't fall down. She she managed to grab on. She's OK. You think she's safe because that's the that's the typical beat you're used to. No, she's she's still not safe. They're still in the middle of a battle. She's still vulnerable and she dies. Everyone's vulnerable. Everyone is everyone is flesh and blood. That was some great a audience manipulation, I will say, yeah, it uh, because it, you know, it, when with the first fake out, you're like, well, of course they're not going to kill her because she's pregnant. You know, that was sort of it. What I was thinking, like they're not going to kill off this pregnant woman, you know. And then they did, so yeah. it, they definitely play with your expectations of what you're used to seeing and what you would expect to see. 
Um, did that did that bother you at all, Liza, when they when they went there? Um, not really. No. Although while we're on the topic of the very pregnant girl, uh, I I can't remember where I read it, but there was something that I found really interesting. Where, although I don't necessarily agree with it, they talked about Miller being almost the anti Bay. In that, in Transformers, like the, I think the first shot we saw of Megan Fox was her stomach leaning over a car. Oh, yeah, probably. And and just the fact that we had that one scene where we lingered on Rosie Rosie Huntington Whiteley, um, uh-huh. the actress playing the very pregnant wife. Um, we lingered on her stomach, and she was very pregnant. And so it was. I w- I want to say. It, the idea there is going like the pendulum swinging entirely the other way. Um, But then this gets into one of the problems I had with the film in that there is still sort of this sexualization of women's bodies. But okay. You know, I actually hadn't heard that. So that's interesting. Which? Oh, I, I really hadn't heard an argument against, Fury Road that it sexualizes women women's bodies. So I'm inviting you to expand. I mean, just that all of the wives are traditionally what you would consider beautiful women, which of course is something that Joe would go for. Um, yeah. And that they're the outfits that they wear are very much showing off their bodies. Yeah, even to the even the the pregnant woman isn't wearing it, you know, maternity. She doesn't shop at a maternity store, so. Now, I find it actually really interesting that you bring it up, um, because um, th- there's a lot uh, written about uh, essentially visual pleasure, and there and there there's a famous essay by Laura Mulvey called "Visual Pleasure: Narrative Cinema," and she basically equates uh, so much of, it, at least in terms of the history of Hollywood of the camera as being a uh, perpetuator of the male gaze um, looking at and segmenting and fetishizing parts of the female body. And with many examples of that throughout the history of Hollywood. And I think that's very well supported. And... It's true though. The theory of male gaze has sort of evolved to say that you can enjoy looking at a woman and still respect her. So I don't want it to, I don't want it to be as black and white as that sounds. No, but... I'm not. Yeah. I'm not trying to make it black and white. Um, there was a moment when, um, or after the first major action sequence, the in the film, the car chase through the sandstorm, um, or at least it culminates in the car chase through the sandstorm. Uh, when Max actually first encounters the wives, there is a moment when it does seem very angelic and kind of uh, um, fetishized a bit. And that's, I think, the one moment in the movie where I felt that. Um, I can't really pinpoint, though, many examples after that where the camera is kind of treating the women sensually or sexually or, like, or objectifying their bodies. I, I, nothing stands out to me like that. I was wondering, Eliza, if you had any... Um, was there anything later in the film that kind of stuck out to you as being, uh, as being representative of, of that kind of filmmaking? And also, was that the only issue you had with it from a feminist perspective? Absolutely not. Okay. Uh, everyone is white, but... Well, Zoe Kravitz, not Yes, white. and how yeah. many lines does she have? Very few. I had to look up that her name is Toast the Knowing after I saw the movie. Well, oh, toast. I ha- honestly, toast. 
in that vein, I had to look up all of the wives' names. Yeah, that's um, fine. Yeah. Um, but actually, that Mike brought up that moment about him coming around the corner was actually interesting to me because when I first saw that moment, the first time I saw it, he comes around that corner and there's the women scantily clad with the water splashing and and he... I, I expected him to stop and, you know, he had the gun. He was prepping to attack them. But he actually took a moment, kind of took it in for a second, and then was like, all right, going after him with the gun. Here we go. Right, right. So it was almost the opposite of what you would expect in that male gaze that naked women stop him in his path. Right. Yeah, he didn't, like, dro- drop his gun and open did, his mouth. He didn't and, have and, an oh, brother, where art thou moment. <laughs> No, he certainly did not. I, I was glad that they didn't go there. And it showed more about Mac, Max's character, too. It showed him as a much deeper character, as someone who was uh, confronted with this undeniable beauty. And so, probably what anyone could read as innocence, he's still skeptical and uh, untrusting of anyone besides himself. By the way, the names of these of the wives are absolutely insane. I didn't even know all of them until I'm looking them up right now. Like the, the one named Cheeto? Cheeto, that's what I was looking at. Cheeto? Cheeto? Cheeto, with actually a pretty unfortunate subname. It's Cheeto the Fragile, which... Oh, okay. Huh. Which I don't... Yeah, I don't really think describes... I mean, any of the wives as far as I is, saw. Is Cheeto the one who... With the long brown hair who wants to go back to Joe at one point? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Oh, well, I mean, I guess that makes sense, you know, calling her the Fragile at that point. I guess so. Um... I guess so. The Dag, who I believe is the one who called Max, uh, what does she call him? A, uh, he says that he eats Schlanger or something. I yep. don't know. Oh. He's a, I don't know. She always seemed to have these great quips. I, I, that, and she was the one at the end who said that her baby's going to be so ugly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it also goes. To, I mean, most of the characters I don't think are named in the film itself. Yeah, to be fair, I only knew Nux's name because Eliza told it to me in text, and I only knew Hectus Erectus because it's Mike said it on the Hectus last podcast. It's not Hectus Erectus; it's Rictus Erectus. Rictus Erectus. Now we just sound like idiots. See, so I didn't even know that guy's name. <laughs> I was just following your lead, man. Um, I like. I'm Hectus an equal Erectus opportunity moron. So I didn't correct you. Oh, yeah, Hectus erected. We can always be. We we say so much wrong shit on this podcast. Probably, I we can always be correct. Yeah, don't, don't worry. I just thought it was funny. Yeah, it is. Hey, his last name's still Erectus. We didn't get that wrong. You got you got half it right. The one yeah, we got the we got the penis joke part right that we made. Of course. Uh, um, are you guys okay if I bring up very quickly uh, Anita Sarkeesian's response to the film? Just because I'm interested in, uh, I'm interested in responses to it. Okay, all right. I, yeah. I don't, I don't have to if you don't want to devote time to it, but uh, I, I just thought it, thought it was interesting. No, you can. I think it's, it'd be interesting to see, particularly what Eliza has to say. I mean, so. I don't know what her response to it was. Yeah. Do you know who she is? Uh, I've heard the name. Okay. Great. Yeah. So that means you'll have no you'll go into this with That's no bias whatsoever. I, I don't want there to be that. I think there's a lot of ugly baggage uh, with people's res- like response to Neosarkeesian and feminist frequency, and I don't want that. I just want the genuine response to her consensus on the film. Um, uh, basically, she's just a feminist so she, uh, fe- feminist uh, critic of of games and films, mostly games, but. Um, mm-hmm. 
she essentially uh, conceded that Mad Max Fury Road was not a feminist film. Um, and her reasons for saying that are, uh, they boil down to that the, uh, the film really only just allows its women to take part in male violence, cartoonish male violence, as opposed to redefining any kind of social value system. Um, the, uh, just to quote from the tweets themselves, uh, feminism doesn't simply mean women getting to take part in typical badass guy stuff, in quotes. Um, feminism is about redefining our social value system. Sometimes violence may be necessary for liberation from oppression, but it's always tragic. Fury Road frames it as totally fun and awesome. So overall, um, pretty skeptical about the idea of it. I mean, just rejecting the idea of it being a feminist film altogether. Um, I'm, so yeah, I'm wondering if you guys agree or disagree. And uh, I'm more curious just what Eliza said. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's mostly, I know what James thinks. Um, I think that, um, I mean, part of that is that this is a Mad Max film. It has to fit into that universe. If it had not had the grittiness and the violence, it would be a different film entirely. It wouldn't be a Mad Max film. So I understand that critique, but I think that we have to look at it in the frame of the universe that it comes from. So you think her opposition to it would be more so more at the core of the film rather than its feminist implications? That, and then also I think that it is important to look at... Um, where the film goes after what we see, and also even some of what we see in, uh, I think I, I talked to you about this, James, during our original discussion, the character of Nux has um, a big transformation in, um, and I think it's kind of a depiction of, um, of the patriarchy as a whole, and how um, he... His, his view of Immortan Joe and of that power structure changes because he has, he has a role model in Max um, of someone who, who doesn't see women as property and he sees women fighting for themselves and he's even shown uh, with, with no really interaction previously, the redheaded wife, whose name I don't know, um, just... Sh- cares for him immediately um and that's that's i think important that it's not just about women doing man stuff there is women doing quote-unquote women stuff as well oh and and also they um they they basically the wives get upset when anyone is killed like that was part of the arrangement no that, that they you know don't kill anyone right that's pursuing them so it's definitely coming from there's i don't want to say that things like that are uh are feminine but they're they're you know compassionate and humanistic in a way that the people who work who have lived their entire lives uh subjected to immortan joe don't haven't been exposed to um, and the fact that Nux is transformed by that kind of compassion is actually pretty. It, it, it's it's a reflection on how damaging that kind of how damaging uh, Morton Joe's kind of uh, rule and subjugation of people is, and how how it hurts everybody. And that, absolutely, and, yeah. I mean, you remember how excited he was at the start when Morton Joe looked in his direction, not even necessarily at him, although he thinks it was, 
And so getting that very surface, shallow level of approval meant so much to him, and, and he had to do so much to get it. And then he meets, as you said, the redheaded wife, and who is interested and compassionate immediately. Yeah. It really helped his arc, as Mike said, become the most, com- probably the most complete arc of any of the characters. I mean, he, he did have the biggest change of anyone Agreed. in the whole film. Um, and it was so much better than any Dances with Wolves style like oh, plot I've I, probably I've ever seen in a movie. And I usually take it back when I say ever, but if I'm thinking of that, probably ever. Well, I, I don't know much about... I don't want to use terms like othering when I don't really, I, I'm not well-versed on this stuff. I, I don't want to misuse the terms, but he doesn't treat these people, like the, the Max and Furiosa and the wives, he doesn't treat them as um, like exotic things or alien things to him. He, he interacts with them as people. He His first scene with the redheaded wife is kind of confessing, not confessing, but like laying out everything that's uh, uh, bothering, like, that, that, that's uh, distressing him. And and being and having that reciprocated with compassion is what affects him and wins him over. So it's not as though he's like, I don't know, there's no sense of him interacting with people who are, you know, different than him or weird or uh, you know that he's never experienced before. It's it's kind of a genuine human moment instead. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that was. I hope those were words. Those were words, okay. yeah. Um, and not because of your, not because of, uh, not because of that segment you just said. Um, but I have been looking at the clock. We probably have to move on to our next segment. Uh, if you haven't seen Mad Max at this point, what are you doing? Well, they don't even need to see it anymore. We just told them the whole thing. I know. I <laughs> know. What are you doing here? And what are you doing not at the th- movie theater? Um, and we're now going to move on to probably Mike. Had, Mike was kind of uh, worried that this next segment we're doing would undermine everything we just said. Um, yeah. How do you want to frame it? It's okay. I I I, do, I want to live in a world. We're we're gonna do a. We're each gonna give our fa- favorite sort of female contributions to film. I want to live in a world where we don't need to do a list like this, where we don't need to draw attention to standout female contribu- film contributions because they'll just be as frequent as male. As, But we don't live in that world right now. So and if anyone's, these lists are sort of necessary. These conversations are necessary. And if anyone's wondering if I'm on board with that, uh, just know that James pretty much plagiarized that speech from a conversation he had with me. I, I completely plagiarized <laughs> it from Mike. I thought Mike was setting me up there because he was like, he's been sick this entire podcast. I don't yeah. know if you could tell by his sniffling. So I was just like, I will, I will take it from here. But credit to Mike Lydon. He said it better than I ever could, and that's why I said it exactly like he did. Oh, thanks, James. I didn't say it. You know, it was okay. Um, but no, I, but no, it, it's it's true, and it's sad we have to make this list. I, I think Mad Max Hero does a great job because it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it makes very few polemic statements. It just sort of takes so much uh, of uh, as like established fact and common sense. Like who would think differently? Um, unfortunately, it seems like most of Hollywood is not on board yet. So, therefore, we are making this list to honor the uh, exceptional women throughout film. Yeah, uh, so we're each going to start, we're going to go around probably quicker than we want to do so, but um, uh, we have we each have five. And If it gets uh, too I'll... long, we can do just three. Yeah, yeah that's well, true. If I start with, uh, I'll start with, do you want me to start? Yeah, that'd be great. Sure. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll start, start with, with I'll, I'll start. 
It's, no, go ahead. I'll start with my number five, and then we'll go to what I imagine is uh, clockwise. And I'm sort of hearing Mike out of my left ear right now, and Eliza out of my right ear, so... I only have one ear, so you're both on the right. <laughs> Perfect. So, yeah, we'll go me, Mike, and then Eliza. Cool. Uh, great. So, my number five female contribution uh, favorite is Ellen Page in Hard Candy. And I, I feel like Mike had a, a brief fear moment where he thought I was going to say Juno, but I'm, I'm oh. not. Uh, Ellen Page in Hard Candy is one of her first big roles, even though it wasn't that big of a role, but it it was so good. Have You've seen that, right, Mike? Yeah, I have a, lot, a lot, yeah. while ago, but it was fantastic. Yeah, they had this little, like, sort of twisted play on Little Red Riding Hood where instead of being chased by the wolf, she turns it around on the wolf. And she played it so well. She played that innocent, like, naive girl at the beginning. And then how she turned into such a complicated character who even you couldn't really fully get on board with sometimes. You you were kind of worried she was going too far and maybe a little crazy. And who knows, maybe she really was at the end. It was so complex and nuanced. And I loved how it foreshadowed what it has really become a great career for her. Um, and yeah, that's it. That's, uh, I will, we'll go along, we'll go along from that. My number five was hard candy. Oh, and I want to say too, if we ever have an, an overlap on the list, you know, if, if, if for example, I don't think it was, but if for example, hard candy was on your list, you guys can butt in and say, yeah, that was my number, blah, blah, blah. So then we can just have the conversation at the same time. Yeah. Sounds good. Hard candy is not on mine, but, uh, I think it's a great pick. Um, so for uh, my number five, I kind of struggled with it. I was going to put uh, Uma Thurman in Kill Bill uh, originally um, because I think despite how it may seem on the outset, it's not just a badass with a gun or in this case a sword. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I actually kind of I, I decided against it because I wanted to do uh, another Quentin Tarantino uh, female lead, uh, one that I think is actually much more underrated. Um and uh, I'm going to do Jackie Brown from, from Jackie Brown, which is, oh, okay. <laughs> I think, uh, far and away his most underrated movie. It actually may be my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, and, like, on the outset, it doesn't seem like it would be very respectful to its main characters because it's framed as kind of a, a throwback to black exploitation films, which, uh, if you're not familiar with it, were entirely about sexualization of... Uh, and uh, of black people and particularly busty black women. Um, but uh, Jackie Brown gives so much, it, it's kind of a film like Fury Road in that it respects all of its characters, but most of all Jackie Brown, it's, it's Roger Ebert said it's a film about smart people. Uh, some of whom are just smarter than others. Like it's it, the, <laughs> the, the entire movie is uh, a, a heist. Uh, heist isn't the right word, but uh, basically people, uh, trying to scam other people and being out scammed themselves. And Jackie Brown is the one at the, the forefront of all of it. Um, and she's such a well, she's, I think Quentin Tarantino's best realized female character. She uh, is, she has a romantic relationship, but it's, it, it's never even, uh, it, it doesn't hinder her at all. She is basically uh, to some degree, uh, respected by all the main characters she's at any point where cops try to 
uh, belittle her or, or kind of condescend to her. She always has something to, uh, g- you know, get back on them. Uh, she never allows herself to become a victim of anything, um, but she's also not invincible. She, you, you see her thought processes throughout the whole film. Um, and yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's one of the most well-realized characters from any of Quentin Tarantino's films. And uh, actually, James, this is the film I, I kind of hold. I think we should do uh, next week for our forgotten favorites or uh, our forgotten favorites segment, which is where we talk about films that uh, maybe uh, great films that maybe don't uh, aren't remembered uh, as much as they should be. Yeah, I'd be excited to do that. It's amazing to me that a that Quentin Tarantino can can make a well developed female character. To be honest, because he's kind of an asshole. Um, he is kind of an but... asshole. Uh, he he did one too. I th- this is what I thought you were gonna say. I thought you were gonna say uh, Miss Dreyfus in uh, Inglorious Bastards. Um, that's what I thought you were gonna do. So when you said Jackie Brown, I was kind of surprised by that. I definitely see where you're coming. Are from you talking that. about Shoshana Dreyfus? In- in- yeah. Oh, I mean that would be a great pick too. Um, like her and uh, Uma Thurman and Kill Bill, like I said, were uh, honorable mentions for me, and I was I was thinking about putting them on. Um, but, but 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 they're less. How many Tarantino but, but, are you despite, gonna put in one list? But, you know, uh, yeah, and as much as I like respect those characters, uh, and I, while I do think they're given development and motivation, Jackie Brown seems the most human. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to go with Jackie Brown. Um, I think it's a criminally underseen movie, and I think we should talk about it uh, next time. Okay. So, Eliza, I actually, in all this talk, I actually forgot what your five are. So this is going to be a completely genuine, genuine reaction for me. Oh, great. Um, so my number five, and I want to start my list by just saying that I am well aware that there is no perfect feminist film, that every movie will have its flaws, and so I don't claim that any of these are perfect. These are just ones that I enjoy and I find fun and good performances by women. Um, so my number five is Thelma and Louise, because... Okay, you did end up putting that one. I did. Um... Because it's it's a fun story, and you see a woman who is she starts out um, in a relationship where she's really being crushed by a, by a, a man who is abusive and overpowering and controlling, and um, she she works her way up to being braver, and it's it's two women doing uh it's 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 almost um, like a like a male buddy movie adventure heist with women, and they they get a taste of freedom, and it's it's almost um, cartoonish in some of its aspects in what it it points out flaws within the system of of rape and of the male gaze and of women being objects, but it points them out and then it destroys the men so thoroughly that it becomes funny but it's 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 a fun story and it's it is women empowering themselves and escaping ba- a bad situation i like that yeah i'm i'm glad you put that one on your list um so my number four then is i think one that may have ended up on eliza's unless she took it off uh was clary starling in silence of the lands yep that is my number two Number two. Okay, no, I almost I almost put this at number two. It was weird. It's weird to either go from four or two, but um, 
Yeah, I. It's funny. I thought you. It's funny you said you were worried that it didn't belong on the list. It totally belongs on the list. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Jodie Foster won Best Actress for it. Definitely deserved it. Was not just riding the coattails of a of a really great movie. Um, I I loved her from beginning to end, and I love how she was never. I mean, even in the end, she was not a badass with a gun at all. She was a a shaking leaf with a gun at the end when. Uh, uh, Buffalo Bill is like d- stalking her throughout the house, so she has that. She she's allowed to be vulnerable, but still very. You know, you root for her. You're not. You're never looking down on her for being vulnerable. You feel you're. You feel like you're vulnerable along with her, um, and she's. You get this perspective from her, also as a not just as a character from a performance. You get this perspective of her that she's in over her head from beginning to end, but also striving to reach the surface i i can i can i don't know what the oscar race was like for best actress that year i'm not going to pretend to and i'm not going to quickly click click on the wikipedia page i can't imagine there was much competition i think that her in that in that film is also important because um her vulnerability is almost a strength in her because people perceive her as being vulnerable they don't expect great things from her and that's what what causes great things from her but also i appreciate her because there is nothing decidedly or definingly female about her it is a character that i think could have easily been played by a rookie male in the field but and i think that that's that's a powerful aspect because they aren't relying on her femininity to to create this character. She is a strong human. That's a very good point. I didn't even think to mention that. I, so. I agree with that. Although, although I do think that there's one very uh, strong uh, character building aspect of her being a woman, it, 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 mainly in the earlier scenes when she's visiting Hannibal Lecter early in the film. Uh, her enduring the the catcalls and, and quite... More than catcalls. More than catcalls. Of yeah. the uh, other fellow prisoners. I think, you know, it says a lot about her character and her, I guess, determination to disregard it or go through with that uh, and, and endure it. Um, I, I thought that that was a, a brilliant character moment for her. But, I mean, other than that, though, you're right, Eliza. There's not really that much. I mean, and then, you know, another film she would have had a an explicit romance with her uh i forget his name but her her superior at in, in the cia or fbi yeah in the fbi um and they don't really play any of those familiar beats that would have made it so much more conventional so yeah i think that's a wonderful wonderful pick i think jack crawford is jack crawford name. thank you that was I knew it wasn't that that weird yeah <laughs> All right, so Mike, you're number four. Then. Okay, uh, so my number four is a little bit of a cheat um, because it's it's one actress in two different roles, um, but I I couldn't really decide between them because I think they're both so great. Uh, it's it's uh, Maribel Verdu um, for her roles in both Pan's Labyrinth and Itu Mama Tambien. Um, oh, okay. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth, of course, she plays uh, this. Uh, basically a maid at the compound of 
the uh, main evil general in the film. And uh, it's revealed later on in the film, she has a brother fighting in the resistance uh, against the general. And the way that she interacts with the main character, Ophelia, uh, tries to protect her. uh, And at the same time, you know, navigate the general's compound in a way that won't get her murdered um, is fascinating. And I like, she has like one of the most memorable characters for me in that film because she has such an impossible line to navigate and she does it with such tact and she's both protecting and absolutely fierce. Uh, I've yeah, she's developed so well with relatively little screen time and, uh, yeah, I her character is a standout to me in that movie. Um, I, if I'm going to pick one between these two, I'd actually maybe prefer Itu Mama Tambien, um, which is Alfonso Cuarón's. Uh, yeah, that has his, to be something to do with it. <laughs> uh, well, it's his that that was his maybe probably his first really standout film that got him recognized on a global scale, um, and she plays uh, this uh, Spanish woman who is. Uh, visiting Mexico uh, and finds out that her husband uh, has been cheating on her. So she breaks up with him and uh, take, embarks on a road trip with these two teenage boys who are like, basically don't res- like they, they are sex crazed. They don't respect women at all. They view them as objects. And she, her interactions with them, uh, at first, she's essentially the one using them for sex. She's actually quite a sexually liberated character in this. Um, as the film goes on, I don't want to spoil anything because it's actually a pretty pretty devastating finale of this film. You learn a, a fact about her character that completely recontextualizes her, uh, her actions throughout the film. And the fact that it, she basically reveals the two teenage characters to be uh, the shallow... Uh, like uh, disrespectful children that they have been acting like throughout the whole film. Uh, it, it's it's such a powerful, it's a powerful performance. Before you know this secret about her character, and after you do, it's it's absolutely devastating. So I know that's really vague, and I apologize, but um, yeah, both of these roles are just stand up for me. Um, I had to, so yeah. Uh, Mary Bell. So you put him at a tie at number four. I put him then? in a tie at number four, um, but, but Mary Bell Verdu is the is the uh, prevailing person I want to recognize. She was fantastic in both these roles. I hope she has uh, a long career ahead of her. She's fantastic. Yeah. All right. So Eliza, then number um, four. My number four is one that I may not discuss very well because it only just popped into my head and I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember being influenced by it a lot. Is uh, the movie Chocolat? Ooh, um, oh, that's uh, that's Juliette Julia Binoche, my favorite actress in the world. Yeah, we just our last podcast was well, one of our last podcasts was gushing over Julia Binoche, so you're in good company. Oh, good. Um, well, uh, she, she there is a love interest, and there's discussion about that being, you know, the same conversation we had earlier about how a love interest does not necessarily take away strength from a female character, um, but. This this movie is about uh, a village in f- that that is uh, totally ruled by religion and patriarchy and 
Um, and this woman, Vivian, moves there and the small village in France and opens a chocolaterie and uses the, the chocolate she creates to free people from this sort of world where they're living. And the scene specifically that reminded me of this movie is the scene where um, her friend, whose name escapes me, um, but the uh, the other main female character is uh, just whacks her head over the husband, her husband over the head with a frying pan uh, because he <laughs> was abusive. But anyway, this movie is it's it's about freeing people from patriarchal and Christian patriarchal expectations to some extent. I like the the Flintstone imagery <laughs> with the frying pan. Uh, I don't know why that popped in my head. <laughs> well, you know, you guys are Pebbles and Bam Bam, so. Oh God! I didn't even think of that. Oh, for those of you who don't know, on my Facebook, Eliza's the Pebbles, my Bam Bam. Oh. Um, oh. And my number three, we're gonna move on. Uh, is I spoke about it. I spoke about this woman briefly in this podcast. Uh, I want to. This may have recency bias, but I want to talk about Jillian uh, Flynn uh, for the, doing the screenplay for Gone Girl. And mostly, it's just so impressive that she she also wrote the novel of the same name, Gone Girl, and adapted her own work, which people really underestimate how freaking hard that is to do. And that she did so and wrote such a complex female character, played very well by Rosamund Pike, this, who uh, honestly could have made it on a list like this, um, was so impressive. I, and it managed to be such a... You know, I always try to make distinctions between a narratively driven film and a character driven film, but this was good. This was works as both, and that's not something you see very often or see very often done well. You know, I was so interested in Rosamund Pike's character and Ben Affleck's character even. Um, Tyler Perry was good in this movie. <laughs> My God. And, yeah, right. And that's all. And that's all. This movie was all Gillian Flynn. I mean, it, it, of course, and it's you know David Fincher, masterful director, and the thing, and his directing choices were evident in almost every shot. Um, but narratively and character, this had Gillian Flynn written all over it. And I cannot believe she. I don't. Did she even get a nomination? No, she for this? wasn't. Wait. Uh. Ooh. I really don't think she was nominated. I forgot. There were so many outrages from the Oscars last year that I forgot. Uh, I yeah, forgot I, th I think that was one of them. <laughs> I think that was one of the uh, one of the controversies that Gillian Flynn wasn't. Uh... Yeah, no. The only act, the only nomination this movie got was uh, Rosamund Pike for Best Actress, which, like, no David Fincher director, no Best Picture nomination, and yeah, no screenplay nomination, no adapted screenplay for Gillian Flynn. I. I, I can't believe, and in fact, you, I remember looking at the, the Metacritic scorecard uh, before, the award scorecard before that, I think to my knowledge, Gillian Flynn was leading the, that, that category, uh, you know, winning all the other awards, so, I can't believe, it. I don't want to go back too into, you know, Oscar politics and things like that, because we, we've beat that to a dead horse, we beat that dead horse there's, a lot. There's no sense in it, but. Yeah, um... so, I need to call, I need to call her out, and you know, put her up on the pedestal. She deserves beyond. It don't, was one of the best James, screenplays. James, don't put what? don't put women on pedestals. Don't put anyone Damn on. It. That's part of feminism. Damn it, Mike. 
<laughs> okay, what was your number three? <laughs> actually, no, hold on. I actually did want to ask you, though, really quick, because I, I agree. I love Gone Girl. I agree with you. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a wonderful film. There, there were, there was a lot of outrage though, um, from pretty much everyone, not outrage, but like varying opinions on Gone Girl as either a misogynist or a misandrist or a both or a neither film, uh, across the yeah. spectrum of, of, <laughs> uh, of, you know, people and their personal beliefs. Um, and I found that interesting and kind of indicative of, like the fact that it can't that the film isn't like neat or clean enough to be summed up as any one of those things in those one word descriptions um yeah for sure i'm on the camp that it's sort of neither you know yeah. it's uh it's not feminist it's not well i, I mean i you could say you can interpret it as feminist and that you know Gillian Flynn's motivation was saying I want to make a woman who's a villain right and i want to make it so she has clear motivations and is not just a punchline you know, yeah. like so many, so many times a woman's a villain. It's like a shock twist. You're like, the woman is a villain. What? Yeah. Uh, and this is this was it's sort of a, a, a it pushed the boundaries on, you know, who could be. A, I mean, people were offended by it because and it, a lot of people, a lot of women were offended by it because, you know, the the woman villain in this case, it does things like, uh, um, you know, has a, a fake rape accusation and other things like that. She uh, like fakes a pregnancy to get back at her husband, things like that to, you know, win over public opinion. And these aren't things that, that Gillian Flynn, the, the mistake is thinking that Gillian Flynn is endorsing these or saying that this happens all the time. She's simply saying, what would a completely evil woman do? Well, uh, that, that's what kind of surprised me. And like, I, I agree with you mostly about this movie I feel like for the people saying that the movie was misogynist, they, it's weird. She made a villain um, and people took it as this is what all women are, or this is what Gillian Flynn or this is what David Fincher or uh, whoever is making this is trying to say that all women are, which to me is such a weird idea that, that you would take this character, this devious character as an example, who, who, by the way, is a character, and is, and you can you can analyze her motivations and, and and talk about her in a complex way, but that this character somehow embodies an entire gender and embodies fifty percent of the human population. That's that that's where I, I think that that that's a ridiculous interpretation to me. That's why I never I didn't agree with any of the the claims that this movie was misogynist. Um, Eliza, yeah, and- did, oh, I'm wondering if Eliza had any. Uh, uh, I have not seen okay. Gone Girl. Okay, so. gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, um, um, but yeah, that's just that's how I felt personally. I felt like that was a weird response to have to say that she's been therefore emblematic of all women. That that seems, or that anyone in this film thinks she's emblematic that, of all. Yeah, women. Yeah, I mean that seems like a sexist remark to me. But I, I, yeah, that that's also very a film that you can discuss uh, in terms of, in feminist terms. Although I feel like the results are a little bit more messy than, than with Mad Max Fury Road. Okay. Now anyway, we're going to you. Sorry. Know. That was just a tangent, but I wanted to talk about it really quick. Um, oh no, it's worth, it's worth, discuss- worth, sorry. It's worth a discussion. Cool. Um, so I, I don't have in a weird turn for me, I don't have any films made uh, on my list. There are no films made, uh, before the year I was born, which is kind of, uh, uncommon. <laughs> uh, this is the closest I have cause it's, it's, Todd Haynes is far from heaven. 
it, it came out in 2002, but it's focused on uh, a family in 1950s Connecticut. And the entire film, and, and mainly centering on Julianne Moore's uh, portrayal of uh, Kathy Whitaker, the main character of the film. Um, and I knew I had to put one Julianne Moore performance on, on my list, and this is mm-hmm. the one I'm going with. Mainly because it's uh, the nature of the role subverts, it, it addresses and subverts uh, the roles for women in 1950s society through the aesthetic of like the old 1950s Douglas Sirk melodramas. Uh, like uh, written on the wind and all that heaven allows and things like that. Um, the the plot of the film essentially is that in, in this you know conservative little Connecticut suburb in the fifties, uh, this uh, Julianne Moore's uh, housewife uh, falls in love with a black gardener uh, named Raymond, and uh, she, uh, also simultaneously finds out that her husband is gay, and the chain of events that that, that these two things ignite reveal how like this really awful cruel world uh under the veil of this like idyllic 1950s uh society and julianne moore's character i love that she is both you know a part of this society she actually uh you know rebukes her husband tries to get him cured of his homosexuality and uh you know she's not above the you know the other characters in this film she's not a social pioneer but she also has to kind of come to terms with her own socially uh, unacceptable feelings for a black man um and the film never condescends to her but it also never like elevates her to this level of a, of a pre you know someone who's preaching to the the people in the film or, or above the society she's in um, it's a really nuanced and powerful performance, even though it seems really bold and broad on the outset, which is kind of the theme of the movie. It kind of goes in deeper to this traditional idea of, of cons- you know, the conservative 1950s American lifestyle um, and gets to something a lot more uh, dark and deep. And, and it afforded Julianne Moore such a great opportunity to play a really nuanced character who is definitely flawed, um, certainly a product of her environment, but also having to reckon with with these feelings that not everybody is going to condone and not everybody's going to embrace and accept. So, yeah, if, if uh, I, anyone who hasn't checked out Far From Heaven, uh, I don't hear it talked about too much, but it's a wonderful, wonderful film. And Julianne Moore is the gleaming gem in it. Fantastic. I know. I told you. I, I actually Julianne Moore made me forget about Hannibal, which is impressive. Oh my god! Because, yeah. <laughs> like I, I did not like Julianne Moore because of Hannibal for the longest time. The sequel to The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Um, but then you know, the more I watch your movies, I'm like, okay, you're forgiven. Oh man, she's done so much good work. And I, I actually, like, it was hard for me to pick one Julianne Moore performance, but that one's still my favorite. So, um, yeah. Okay, so what are we number three, right for Eliza? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um. So. This one I picked originally because I just think that she's adorable. This is Amelie. Um, oh, she is adorable. Yes. She's so but cute. But also, I read an article that I thought framed it in a really interesting way in that she <coughs> almost like seeing the Manic Pixie Dream Girl become the main character and be multifaceted and expanded upon and real and the male, the love interest, becomes this two-dimensional character who is created to fit around this quirky, sweet, main female character. 
Um, and I think that that's a really interesting take on it because I have been called a real life manic pixie dream girl, um, <laughs> which I can see that comparison. for those of you who don't know is a quirky two dimensional female who exists solely to further the life basically of a male. Hmm. Yeah. And to motivate the, and to motivate the male to, to get out change of change in some way. Yeah. Right. Actually, I'm glad you brought up that interpretation because that's actually my, that was my conception of Amelie. Uh, it, the, the the negative connotation of a manic pixie dream girl uh, was kind of how I, I thought of Amelie in my head. But uh, that interpretation is actually very valid. I didn't. I really... mean, quirky people do exist. That they is do. a fact. And For this sure. is this is taking I think taking the idea of manic pixie dream girl and kind of flipping it on its head because it's saying this is a real person. She doesn't exist for the furthering of anyone. She exists, and really, she does. She lives solely for her own pleasure, and she does good things for other people and takes pleasure in that, but it's it's all a part of her personality, and she is a very... She, she is a person. She has personality. So correct me if I'm wrong. I, I never actually heard this term, Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Um, manic or magic? Manic. Yeah. Uh, so is it? So is this basically the the female version of the film concept, the Magic Negro, where you know this black character is seen, you know, he has all these special powers or whatever, special abilities or special insight, but only uses it to help white people. It's a little not different. entirely. A manic pixie dream girl's like a stock character. Um, here's a, a quote. Um, uh, by film critic Nathan Nathan Rabin Rabin, um, who coined the term after a li- this is all reading off of a quote, but uh, after That's observing uh, Kirsten Dunst's character in Elizabethtown, describes the manic pixie dream girl as that bubbly, shallow, cinematic creature that exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. That's the best that's description. <laughs> that's so, that's so no, that actually gives me a whole different perspective on Elizabethtown too, mm-hmm. which in the past I've watched and enjoyed, but thinking about it, it's that's... like that she doesn't really do much else than convince, uh, convince uh, Orlando Bloom not to kill himself. Uh-huh. <laughs> Other examples are Natalie Portman in Garden State, um, mm. and Zoe Deschanel in Five Hundred Days of Summer. I would sort of defend Zoe Deschanel a little bit more than that, but uh, I. I see. I definitely understand the concept a little better. Yeah, so I guess it's my number two now. Mm-hmm. Number two is that where we're on? Yes. Yes. Two. Okay, great. Uh, I imagine that Mike is going to be very surprised that this isn't oh, no. my number one. Okay. It's, it's, so it's not my number one. You're going to be surprised that it's not my number one. Okay. And that is Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty. What? Not my number one. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, but I mean, I also easily could have put Catherine Bigelow as if in this number two, uh, in this same spot, and I almost wanted to tie it up because she did so much, just like Jessica Chastain did in this film. But and you know, Jessica Chastain's performance and her character as this just obsessed person, you know, who devotes her entire life to. I mean, basically her entire life, searching, trying to find Osama bin Laden, chasing at these these fairy tale, uh, basically. Um, and then when she, once it finally gets in the end, doesn't know what to do. She has this sort of like hollow victory. It, 
I've never that was such a powerful performance be and and well directed too because both those both those aspects did so much to make the audience feel exactly what the character was feeling. And it still shakes me to this day that this movie lost best picture to Argo. Um I can't get over that. I never will. But Jessica Chastain, I think, knocked it out of the park. I, I love... It. She has this sort of, like, uh, initial first scene, too, a lot like some of the other people we're talking about, who she sort of felt in over her head in the very first, like, torture scene. She, you know, has to, like, step outside and is very shaken up by the whole experience. And then she grows to sort of being that that antagonist who she's uh, well, willing to antagonize someone to get what she wants because she wants it so badly. I... Yeah, I, I don't want to go on too long because I I'm exactly as much of a fanboy as you think I am of this, and it's and it's not my number one. So yeah, that's uh, surprising. I've kind of come down yeah, off wanna... the I'm kind of I I've kind of come down off uh, Zero Dark Thirty a little bit since it came out. That's fine. I can understand. Uh, that. It's fine. But I think in that year. Yeah, yeah. Argo. Argo, Argo fuck yourself. Um. Uh. Okay. So my number two is the only one that isn't a, an actress or a, 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 and a role in a film. Uh, this is my one where the, 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 the woman is the director of the picture, uh, which is kind of, it's pretty sad, but also I think there are not that many, there, there are even fewer uh, female directors and there are uh, good, uh, strong roles for women, which is really sad. Um, and it's uh, Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. From two to three. So speaking of Sofia Coppola, just getting kicked off of Little Mermaid. Um, Lost in Translation is one of my favorite films of the last fifteen years, um, and it, it's it's not that it's necessarily a, a feminine movie or a film that only a woman can make, but it's got such a strong. It, it really becomes a movie about how relationships change with age and how you view people differently as you go through life and the interplay between Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray and Lost Translations picked up so beautifully and so humanistically uh it it, it takes a real it, it takes someone who's really good with with character and craft to pull it off in a way that feels natural um but also really revelatory and really profound um, and Sophie Coppola totally pulls it off. And Lost in Translation is one of her early films. I'm, I'm not sure if it's her second or third, um, but it, it's it's directed, it's clearly directed by an absolute pro. And um, I mean, to me, it's still her best movie, but it just, it, it showed me and uh, hopefully the rest of the world. I mean, it got, it got a lot of Oscar recognition, but it, it showed everyone that, uh, directing runs in the blood of the Coppola family. So, uh, no, I wanted to put I wanted to put uh, her for Lost in Translation on my list. The only thing is, I haven't seen that film in so many years that I don't I didn't think my analysis you really know, would feel genuine. So. You know, I hope mine does because it actually has been a little while since I I've watched it completely through with my full attention and with my critical faculties working at 100 percent so uh, yeah. I'm hoping you know I'm I'm representing it fairly. I haven't watched it recently, but. Uh, man, I was blown away by it. I I really love it, and uh, I th- I think I think Sofia Coppola is one of the best directors. Period. Uh, 
you know, work today. Yeah, male or female. Male or female. Um, and this also stands in. I, I there are a lot of female directors whose work I haven't really been fully exposed to that I wish I I have seen and would have been able to to place on this list, but can't. Um, like Jane Campion and Claire Denis, um, and th- there are a lot more. I. I haven't seen, I was looking at lists and I was kind of regretting that I haven't seen so many of these films. So um, this is the one I, I have seen and I can probably place it at number two on my list. It's a fantastic movie. All right. So that takes us to Eliza for her number two. My number two, we have already discussed. It was Jodie Foster and Silence oh. of the Lambs. Oh, fantastic. oh, of course. So um, do you want to start with your number one then since we're there? Do you want me to? Sure, yeah. Okay, my number one is, uh, it is actually mostly based on the writing. Um, I'm not necessarily enamored with any of the the characters or how they're played by the actresses particularly, but it was, uh, the the screenplay was written by two women, women uh, Karen Lutz and Kirsten Smith, based on a novel by Amanda Brown, and that is Legally Blonde. Um, which of course, this is the one I told Mike he would not see. coming. I did not see that coming. It does not Uh, seem on the surface, like a feminist film in any direction, but, uh, give me a second to, you know, explain myself. That's fine. I didn't want to interrupt or anything. Like, um, so, so firstly it is, it is a woman who is seen as ditzy and blonde and very feminine and she never changes that about herself. She is 100% true to herself throughout the movie. Um, it is a woman who, yes, she goes to Harvard originally to chase after a man, but she goes to Harvard. Uh, she does. She gets great scores um, on the the test. Um, she she goes there and she at first doesn't do well. She's not committed to her classes. She works hard does well um and in in the end when the man tries to come back to her she doesn't take him back because she sees him for who he is um also there's the important point that women are so frequently pitted against each other or told to compete with each other for the male gaze and for men in general Women are told to compete. Women are told that other women are your enemy. And they set that up so perfectly with Elle's uh, ex-boyfriend Warner and his new girlfriend Vivian, um, only to have in the moment where uh, their professor kisses Elle and you learn that he only hired her because he wants to sleep with her, Vivian sees that moment and sides with Elle rather than Warner. She breaks up with Warner over it, and um, Vivian ends up teaming up with Elle. Vivian, who you think is her female competition, who you think is going to be the villain, they team up together to bring down, uh, to to win this court case, basically. Um, so there's there's themes of women working together and supporting other women. There's themes of staying true to yourself, regardless of what society wants you to do there's the idea that you don't have to compromise who you are in order to be seen as a valuable human you can be pretty and smart at the same time 
Um, it's there's just a lot of like like I said at the start of this, there is no perfect feminist film, but this is a mainstream film that a lot of young girls will see that is really empowering to women. I gotta say I'm, that was incredible. I'm convinced completely. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I hadn't really heard your full argument. I heard this is on your list. I'm like, oh, okay. But damn, that, I, <laughs> you know, I felt a little like I was going to be like Juliet Binoche and Clouds of Sils Maria and just start like thinking that I was just going to laugh at this. But it, that is, that is such a refreshing take on this movie that I just sort of dismissed. And as I told you before, like Mike or I would never think to put this on a list of ours that we're going to make of this type. So Bravo yeah, or bravo, that, that I guess. Fantastic. I mean, it kind of, it it does like it, it does challenge the really widely held misconception that being feminist makes you less female or less. I, 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 assuming you are a woman, uh, less female or less of a woman, and that you have to compromise that for feminism. It it, it actually completely throws a throws a monkey wrench in that as a moot idea so yeah that's that's a fantastic point i don't even man i should have saved that for last <laughs> Jeez, yeah i can't okay. I, I can't follow up on that thing. <laughs> okay well uh i guess i'll try my my number one um not jessica chastain not not Catherine bigelow is uh another another well it's it's kathy bates playing annie Wilkes oh my god in misery that to me is my favorite, and honestly, if if I was to make like a top list, like what I thought was the best, not just my favorite, this would have to be near the top too. I I love this movie all around, but and and having having read the book too, I love the movie, and Kathy Bates playing Annie Wilkes is chilling. It's the best way I can describe it. I love when you kind of get that. F I mean, watching the movie, you kind of get the feeling that not all is right with Annie Wilkes. But you're never really given that. That's more of the tone of the movie. You're never really given that through uh, Annie Wilkes' performance. You know, she's just sort of this unassuming person who, you know, does a good deed, helps this person out. And then the more she lets on about wh who her character is, the, the more trapped you feel. You know, you realize, like, oh, I'm not being helped anymore. I'm being, you know, I'm being held captive. And the way she plays this character, almost in the same same vein as Jessica Chastain's, like, obsession, but a much more twisted obsession, a much more dark obsession. She's not obsessed with accomplishing anything. She's obsessed with this world, with this person, oh, this world that this person's created and the person who created it. And takes it to such extremes, you know, in the book, hacking off a person's foot, and in the movie, you know, just breaking his leg so he can't walk. Um... It, I don't even. I'm stumbling through it because it's so hard to describe with words and be ju do justice to. You really just have to watch this movie to experience, and it's very frightening. I mean, you could almost I, people don't call this a horror movie, and because it, it's more of a, it's much more of a psychological thriller. But it's probably more more horrifying than movies you see nowadays that get the horror movie quote unquote uh, label to it. Um, and she's one of the few villains, male or female, to win a, a best a best actor role, a best leading actor role, I should say. Um, supporting actors win villain. Supporting actors play villains win all the time. Um, 
so yeah, this is my number one. It's uh, I think it definitely deserves to be there. Wow, that's that's also a pretty unorthodox pick. <laughs> All right. I, I was worried it was going to be too conventional because I picked the best actress winner for my number one. <laughs> well, yeah, but just uh, that as a um, an embodiment of a. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's it, it's a great pick. I, I wasn't expecting anything like that. So, oh, well, well done, both of you. Um, <laughs> Okay, so mine was kind of the first one I thought of, the one I knew had to be on my list, and the one that was just a given for me. Um, and this one, I'm afraid, is, I hope isn't too conventional, but uh, here it goes. It's um, uh, uh, Francis McDormand in Fargo uh, from Joel and Ethan Cohen. Um, she plays the pregnant cop, Marge Gunderson, who actually... It, it, kind of reveals herself to be the main character of the film, even though she's only introduced maybe about a third of the way through the movie. Um, which is kind of a test of it to that character's humility. Um, so that uh, her character is uh, kind of stands in for, in this movie for this blissful small town, uh, Frugal existence. Frugal is the wrong word, but th- this this kind of bare bones uh, joy and satisfaction in the simple things in life, which is, sounds so trite, but it's never made a point of. It's just embodied so well in every single aspect of her character, um, and the fact that uh, she's being directed by actually her husband in this film, Joel Cohen. Um, and honestly, I think that she's it, it, she's the one character who seems to be working beyond the page. That she just uh, is so in tune with this uh, with this character who uh, kind of views the, the criminals like the, the, these really awful criminals in this film uh, as uh, it views them with pity uh, that they can't you know uh, that that they can't see any other value in life than this like pursuit of. Uh, you know, greed and and uh, just murdering one another. Um, and it sounds like she's kind of put on a pedestal in that way, but she's absolutely not. Mainly because uh, she is uh, complimented so well by her hu- husband, who is barely in the film, but equally as uh, <laughs> down to earth and and content with with their living. And the final shot of the movie is one of my favorite sequences of intimacy and it's not a sex scene it's just them sitting in bed at night uh with you know the the uh with the tv going on and uh uh them framed in this really close shot with uh you know you know them talking about the baby on the way and and then just going you know we have it pretty good and they have that that's the last line of the film and they're in this just small little wooden house but it's you know that's all they need um it's not necessarily a, a a role that has any kind of feminist stance. I just it created such a an endearing character to me. That's just she's just one of my all time favorite characters in, in any film ever. So it's it's you know maybe uh, not an appropriate uh, role to uh, a real discussion of feminism, but I, it, it just in terms of female roles that have been uh, like just a formative movie going roles for me that, that she's my number one. So yeah. 
No, I like. I don't think that's too conventional at all. Um, so, you're. I think I still think mine was the most conventional. She, well, and Eliza's well, was the most impressive. Well, Eliza's was the most impressive. Uh, but Frances McDormand was also also won Best Actress the year that Fargo came out. So, you know, we both picked Best Actress winners. Um, <sighs> we're such we're such shills. I know. <laughs> okay, well, that was our girl power episode of uh, talking during the movie, and I we've been on this record, recording for a while. Yeah. Uh, so eager to get some rest but i'm really glad we got to do this i want to thank eliza very much thanks for, for having me on the show yeah thank you yeah you were awesome so yeah. uh next week we're going to review i guess spy yeah uh, yeah speaking of uh, you know strong speaking of strong fe- female characters, characters yeah melissa mccarthy and spy that's the plan right now anyway unless something crazy comes out of the blue i think we're gonna do spy um and then yeah i'd like to uh do i'd like to yeah we're gonna Jack- reveal we're gonna reveal our new segment uh, f- uh for Forgotten Favorites, where we sort of point to a movie that maybe you didn't hate, you know, or but people have just sort of forgotten about, or it has left the conversation about film, and we think it really shouldn't have, and I guess our tentative plan right now is to do Jackie Brown, and I'm all on board with that, so it's going to be a great show next week, and it was a good show this week, so as always, thank you for listening.